Hello, church. Let's see. There we are. I think we're a bit, a bit live now. Well, happy St. Patrick's Eve to you. Uh, I don't, don't know what traditions you have in your house, but we're so excited. We've got the tree up. Uh, all of the, the four-leaf clover garlands are everywhere. It's an exciting time. And then at midnight when he comes, well, actually, that's where the metaphor breaks down. But uh, it's good to be with you. Appreciate you putting on some Irish weather for us today. That's always nice as well. We, uh, as if you're visiting, here's what we're doing. We're having a good hard look at our God and our book and noticing uh, the way that we have mishandled scripture through the years and that how we have um, not paid attention to Jesus who defines what truth is and defines who God is. At the end of every lesson, we invite people, if they would like, to bring questions that are on the, you know, there are question cards actually in the back of the pews and place them in one of the buckets up here, marked questions, or there's a box outside in the foyer as well. We pick those up on Monday and go through them. We only had one that dealt with the, the class, uh, or the, the, the lesson. We always get those that deal with um, other things, and I, I'd like to get to those as well. But it said, last week, you said it's not appropriate to helicopter in and grab verses out of context. However, it seems you habitually present singular verses, often several, from different books to back up points you're making. Why? By the way, I look upon that as a great question. It's a, it's a wonderful one. We need to define this. What's the difference between helicoptering in to grab this or that verse and reading from a variety of books and the like to get your point or going around and grabbing verses to show the theme of Scripture? And there is a difference there. The difference is whether we're fishing in this stream to catch the one fish we want to prove our point, or whether we're fishing in this stream to determine what this stream is and the message of this stream. And we can grab verses out of context if you'd like. We can do three right now. And Judas went out and hanged himself. Go do thou likewise. <laughs> and what thou doest, do quickly. I don't think that's what the stream says. But as we read through Scripture, we, we, we do have to grab verses to illustrate the, three, the theme of Scripture. And we're going to actually use an example of this to, to further answer this question at the back end of this lesson. So I'm going to ask you to have some patience and give your attention between now and then. We've been talking about the faith and how, we, how the faith we have in God and our knowledge of God changes as we are led from generation to generation and from century to century, and we're being led by the Spirit of God. He's the one who's taking us down this river. And this river, if you've heard the philosophers say, you can never step in the same river twice because it moves on. This river is moving on and the Spirit is moving on. And you can illustrate this as we've done in Scripture by showing how things changed through Scripture. One of the illustrations that we're going to take a look at today is one of the more startling ones. We looked last week at God's attitude, or what people said was God's attitude, toward the Moabites and mixed marriages and worship and the like. Remember what we said, the Old Testament's an argument about God. Jesus settles the argument. We've got to get that inside our heads and our hearts. To lead us where we need to be, let's look at a subject which is discussed extensively in Scripture, but which we do not talk about. Slavery. 
fact, looking at this subject through the eyes of Jesus makes us all feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? It, um, it makes us blink a bit, back up and say, let's not do a VBS on this one. You know, we're, we're going to just avoid that area in the Old Testament. It's just kind of like you don't have one on the rape of Tamar. You don't have, a, you know, Abraham visiting prostitutes. Let's not do that in VBS. Those things are in Scripture, and slavery is one of them. When Moses came down from the mountain, we've all seen the paintings. He's holding this pretty rock with ten things on it. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says God gave him the entire law up there. So it wasn't just ten commandments. It was a lot. No wonder that God did the writing on the stone, especially that second time. But here he comes down, and part, uh, part of that law in Exodus 21 is God legislating slavery and how it is to be managed. Now, we can look at this and say God legislated slavery and think it's a great idea, or we can say God had no choice because slavery was happening, and therefore he had to accommodate to us and put some rules in effect. Or we could say they misunderstood. God didn't want slaves. But we got to take a look at whatever it is and go from there. Part of that law said if you have a Hebrew slave... They did not call themselves Jews yet. There was no Jerusalem. If you have a Hebrew slave, he's only yours for six years. Then you have to let him go free. In fact, we've all heard the songs or, or heard the sermon illustrations that if a slave didn't want to be let free at the end of it, but to be considered part of your household from then on, he had to put his ear up against the doorpost and you drilled a hole in it. And that's, I guess, the first earring uh, concept. Uh, although I don't know that they plugged it, but the, con the whole idea was, are you serious now? Do you want to stay here? However, if you read down in chapter 21 in verse 4 and then verse 7, you find if it's a female Hebrew slave, she's never allowed to go free, ever. Even your own kinsmen, ever. Well, it gets worse. Three women are described in Exodus as an example one woman is married to a male slave. Uh, she married him before he became a slave. Another married a man, and then the man became a slave. And then the third woman was sold into slavery by her father. None of these are nice, are they? I notice that none of you are saying, listen up, kids, this is important. This is stuff we don't want to talk about, but we have to talk about this. The first woman could go free after a period of time, because she married a free man who became a slave. And in fact, that ended her marriage when he became a slave. The uh, woman who married a slave could not go free. She had to stay there. And the daughter sold into slavery by her father was never to be free. Ever. Just think about this for a while. And then read on. And no wonder, by the, and by the way, atheists read the Bible. They find these passages. You'd better know that they're there, and you'd better have an answer for them. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, he talks about slavery again, but it's changed. The rules have changed. For those of you that like to say, and I know because I was raised in the Taliban wing of our fellowship, that those who like to say, that the law is the law is the law and God never changes, don't understand that God's personality does not change. Our understanding of him does. 
because we are being led by the Spirit, and we're not done yet. You read on, Deuteronomy 15, there both male and female slaves were to be freed after six years. So big change. Here, any Hebrew could sell themselves into slavery and know that it was only for six years' time. More like in America, in your colonial days, the uh, indentured servitude than what we normally think of as slavery. I see God's hands in all of this. First of all, slavery wasn't a good thing ever, not even back then, and there's nothing we can do to make it pretty. Still, there were, in that day and age, few options. And there were times where your choice was very limited. You have, you had no people, no income, no nation, no protection. Sometimes this is the only way to eat. This, sometimes this is the only way to live. But let's not make it, uh, uh, oh, then that's a good thing. Don't make that a good thing. But it was a last resort for them. And still, there were often, for women, no other choices than to marry a slave so that they could become a slave, so that they could, be, they could eat and be protected by a, a family unit. Other than that, it was prostitution or death in the desert. It was an ugly time. Without slavery, there would have been more outcast. I'm aware of this. And I'm also aware that God gave rules on how to treat slaves that were highly progressive for the time. Very progressive. About how their food and their accommodation and their comfort. And I appreciate that. They were treated, slaves in, among the Hebrews were treated far, far better than they ever were treated themselves in Egypt. In fact, God brings that up. Don't treat others the way you were treated. Still, there are some very uncomfortable passages. If you beat a slave, and yet they were able to get out of bed the next day, there was no crime. If they couldn't, there was a small fine. And if they died, there was another fine. Do you, anybody want to say Jesus loves that one? Can anybody imagine Jesus legislating such a thing? Fast forward to Jesus, in fact, and you see everything's changed. The story's now progressed that God is with us not in fire and in a mountain, but in the flesh. And what does he say to us when he sees us face to face? Our slave is our brother and our sister, and to be treated accordingly. We are no longer, in fact, given rules on slaves because that ends. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of these borders have dropped. I want, to, I want the verse held up there for a moment. All of these are gone now. We would not look at this passage and say, I agree with all of that except the slave thing. We still have to have rules about slaves. Who would say such a thing today, knowing Jesus? If somebody were to, you and I would both stand up and rebuke them in the name of Jesus the Messiah. Because, no, that's gone. We would not say, we love everybody except those Jews. We wouldn't do that. Jesus has come. These barriers are gone. And yet, isn't it not amazing how many people say, that's right, but here are the rules about women. The only group we pull out of this we need to talk about that, do we not?
By the way, you might say, but the law is the law is the law. Jesus never said that. In fact, he said the opposite. Are you ready for this one? He said man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. Look at Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 23. Do we have that scripture? One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his apostles walked along, they began to pick some heads of green. The Pharisees said to him, look, what are they, what they, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he gave also some to his companions. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, what you didn't see here is because you're not a, a, a Pharisee or a first century Jew of any stripe, you didn't see what he just did. They played what they thought was a trump card on him. Going, ha ha, you are not of God and your people are not of God. You're breaking God's law. Now, Jesus could have come back and just, you know, they played an eight. He could have played a nine and just won a little bit by saying, you're misunderstanding what work and Sabbath rules are. People are still allowed to grab it and put it in their mouth. But he didn't do that. He threw an ace down. He went all the way to the top. He went way beyond what he needed to do. He expanded the argument because he said, while we're talking about the Sabbath, do you remember when David ate the bread that was dedicated to the priest? Now, the rule was, you do this, you're killed. Everybody said that was God's rule. But now we're facing God. He's standing there in the cornfield. It's actually a wheat field. They call it corn. Uh, to look at us. And in the, straight in the eye, he says, when David ate the bread, it was fine with me because he was hungry. I want you to think about that for a minute. For a long time, people thought God was so protective of the Sabbath, you had to kill people if they broke it. And Jesus here, God in the flesh, looks at us and says, it was okay, David was hungry. What just happened? Love trumped law. That's what happened. And I thank God for that. Because if the law is the law is the law, I'm lost. And there is nothing I can do. But if love trumps law, not only am I not afraid of death, the mortician's going to have to work two and a half days to get the grin off my face. It's not true, actually. They're going to cremate me. I've asked my, I've told my family that's what I want to happen. And they said, well, will Tuesday work for you? And I said, you don't quite understand <laughs> the concept. The, the Scots are a bit morbid. You might notice that after a while. In fact, seen in its entirety, the Bible is not a book of law. But you have to look at the whole stream for this. It's a book of love. It's a story of God and man interacting, wrestling, and learning how to walk with each other after that whole fall in the garden thing. In fact, when God finds his favorite people on the planet, he gives them a new name. And what is that name? Israel, those who wrestle with God. That's what he wants. He never called us to comfort. 
I've had people in my preaching career come up and say, when that happened during worship, that made me feel uncomfortable. And I'll just look at them and say, whoever gave you the idea, you were supposed to be comfortable. None of this is comfortable. It's joyful, but it's not comfortable. This is the river of God, and we're wrestling with God. When we read the Bible as a book of laws, we run into the issues like slavery, genocide, racism, and more. How are you going to deal with that? Is this a good time to, tell, to just admit something? If you're a visitor, kind of checking out God, just, you're not really checking out churches yet. You're just checking out God. You're, God. you're dating God right now. Understood. I want to tell you something. It's a secret. We never talk about it. We're kind of disappointed with our Bibles. We are. Now, we've never said that out loud, and most of us never try to say it silently in case God's tuned in. But we really are. Here's why. We want a book of worship. We really do. We want the book of worship. Probably first, second, and third book of worship. Here are the songs we like in heaven. Here's how fast you're to sing them. Clapping, not clapping, stomping, not stomping. Uh, guitar plugged in, not plugged in. Keyboard, whatever. Here are the rules. Here are the drums we like, the drums we don't like. Now, when we make elders, we want a book of elders. We really do. We try so hard to make one out of Timothy and Titus, even though the lists don't match. We try to act like they do. Yeah, he meant for them to be merged. Really? <laughs> He's God. He can write a book. If he wanted to do that, he could do that. But instead, we try to make rules. And we make all these kinds of rules for God because he forgot to write them. We want rules about fellowship. Now, think about this. If this is what God wants, but this person understands it in a different way, may I fellowship him? I want that in the Bible, but it's not. Because it gets more complicated in our fellowship. Can I fellowship that person? If not, can I fellowship somebody else who fellowships that person? If not, can I fellowship somebody who fellowships somebody? There's, we could go to seven removes here. When, when does it stop? People say, but the Bible says to be of the same mind. Are you trying to tell me that means you agree about everything? Are you married? <laughs> no, my wife is my girlfriend and I love her dearly. I don't understand half of what she does. She'll walk in and say, no, that needs to be over there. And I'll just say, yes, it does. I have no idea what I was thinking. You might want to check me for signs of a stroke because that was just completely out of line right there. We wish our Bible did all that. And whenever people wrote books in the Old Testament and called them law, they did. 631 laws. It's according how you count. You can get one or two either side there. 631 laws about worship in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we don't even get a description of a worship service. And we have two laws. Worship the Lord your God in spirit and in truth. Oh, let's do a third law. Love one another. That's our law. And Jesus, when God walked with us, said about that Sabbath, love trumps law. 
And if we can't believe that from the mouth of God, when are we going to believe it? But if you read this as a book of laws, you've got to decide which law you're going to follow, the slave rules in Exodus 21 or the slave rules in Deuteronomy 15 or the no slave rules throughout the New Testament and Galatians and Philemon in particular. Which, which set are you going to follow? That's why we don't helicopter in on a passage, but we look for the theme and the stream. We look for the whole idea. For those of you in shrink world, the gestalt, the whole thing, the picture of the, uh, from 25,000 feet. The Bible is our story, so we take the Bible seriously. And there are messages and passages that jump out at us when, when we talk about women. One of two of these passages are the big passages that are most quoted. And they leap out and they stand as big rocks in our river. They're 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's have a look. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Okay, then. Interesting. For many, that's it. That's all they need. That's what I mean by helicoptering in. If you grab two verses and refuse to look at the rest of it, or you refuse to look at why he wrote that, I mean, if you, if you don't, if we took uh, the story of Noah the same way we take these passages, we'd be building an ark today. Because we wouldn't look at, well, who did he say it to? For what purpose? Was it limited? And was that time now past? We don't do that with these verses, do we? We, in, we do that with Noah, and I'm glad. I don't want the whole countryside littered with boxes every time it rains. These verses don't answer your question about women in public ministry. These women cause, or these verses cause the questions about women in public ministry because in the Bible, in our stream, we see women in public ministry from the beginning through the end. We see Miriam. She was the worship leader in, in the, of the Israelites. She's the one that wrote the songs. She's the one that led them in the songs. We see Huldah, called a prophet. It was she who validated the reforms of King Josiah and said, yes, this is the law of God. He went to a woman who was a prophet named Huldah. We also see Deborah. When the men of the nation wouldn't step up, she stepped up and served not only as prophet, but also as judge, which meant she was political leader, legal leader, and military leader. Wow. How about Micah 6, verse 4? Have you ever looked at that one? I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Miriam was one of the leaders. That's why, by the way, Aaron and, and Miriam got attacked so hard by God when they said some racist things because they were leaders. They shouldn't be saying that. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting what we forget. How about the unnamed woman who saved Joab from a siege he had foolishly launched against Abel Beth Makkah in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 21? Or Abigail, whom King David said God sent to him Quote, a wise and prudent woman 
to stop him from making a foolish and violent mistake. Women are advisors to kings, advisors to generals. They lead. They speak to them. When Joab got in trouble again, Joab got in trouble a lot. God sent him to Tekoa, a woman, to help him negotiate himself out of it. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 14. It was a woman who saved Moses' life and served as his nurse and taught him, you are not an Egyptian, you are a Hebrew. It was a woman who taught him. How about Psalm 68, verse 11? The Lord announces the word, and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng. Did you know that was in there? It's interesting what God writes in the Bible when we're not looking. It really is. Throughout Proverbs, the book, the wisdom itself is anthropomorphized as a woman. She, she, she. Wisdom is a woman. Ladies, don't use that as a trump card against us. It's just, it's just a nice thing to know. By the way, we do think you're wise. Hey, look at the taste you've got. You chose us. When, when Jesus is born... He is brought to the temple, and two people meet him there. Simeon, who just happens to be there, by the way, he doesn't live there, but Anna, a prophet, called a prophet, lives in the temple and declares who this is. God brought Jesus, the baby Jesus, to a man and a woman, both priest and prophet, to announce who he was. Is that not interesting? We see Philip having four daughters who preached alongside him. Acts 21, verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Huh. Prophesied in the New Testament almost always means public preaching. They went with him. How about Priscilla? Some versions call her Presca. Uh, she was a teacher in the early church. Almost always mentioned before her husband, Aquila. I believe Aquila was mentioned twice, if my counting is right. The rest of the time, Priscilla is mentioned first. And remember in the first centuries, whoever was mentioned first was the prominent leader. And that was very, very serious about this. Very unusual to see the woman's name listed first, but it was. In fact, when the preacher came through by the name of Apollos and he was making some mistakes... It was Priscilla who took the lead in teaching him. Hmm. Then we see Dorcas, also known as Tabitha. They had a lot of names. It's all right. Dorcas was so important that when she died, the church was going to spiral downward. They just couldn't get out of their grief. So Peter had to raise her from the dead to save that church. I find that fascinating on many levels, but I can't keep, I just I always go to poor Dorcas. She, after a life of faithfulness, she finally makes it to live with God, and Peter drags her back. And he doesn't just drag her back, he drags her back 1,900 years before indoor plumbing. I mean, it's just not to a nice place either. But that church couldn't make it without that woman. Then Paul, in chapter 16 of the book of Romans, as he's closing out that book, he mentions important people who helped the kingdom move forward. Over two dozen people are named, but only 15 are given a lot of credit for doing the work. 
Some are just names in passing. When he mentions these people did the work, he mentions 15 by name, eight men, seven women. And he starts, the first one named is a woman, Phoebe. Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. In fact, she is the only person in Scripture specifically named a deacon. Is that not interesting? I find that fascinating. It seems there are a lot of fish in this stream, and a lot of them are female. And as you go on through, in chapter 16, he refers to Junia as an apostle and highly esteemed among the apostles. And as we will find out in the weeks to come, a lot of people have tried very hard to make that Junius a male name that does not exist in any ancient manuscript, not one. And even if it did, that would make us scratch our head because it, it, it's not a man's name. It doesn't exist anywhere as a man's name in the ancient world. But Junia does as a female name a lot. Named an apostle. Highly esteemed among the apostles. In the first gospel sermon, first gospel sermon, I, I find this fascinating. The first time Jesus is introduced to the world, a man and a woman. The first gospel sermon, Peter preaches, and he preaches in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, quoting from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. God is repeating himself. Did you notice that? I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Why would God need to say something twice in two verses? Unless he knew we were going to get it wrong. The women are mentioned as well, and highly mentioned. We see women in Jesus' life and ministry. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom several demons had, seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Women were involved day one, everywhere you look in Scripture. When these churches met, they frequently were said to have met in the home of, and then a woman's name is given. She's the one who's made the place for them. So when you see the stream of Scripture, including men and women in public ministry, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you see them given, both of them sp spoken of prominently and given respect to all of a sudden run into Corinthians and run into one passage in Timothy and go, uh-oh, should make us step back and say, there's an anomaly. I'm a science guy. You run experiments, and they just go like this, and you're just going great, and then you get one that is completely wrong. And you're going, what happened? You don't look at that and say, you know something that trumps all the others? You don't. You instead go find out why that one went wrong. 
what was going on there. What's the backstory of that experiment? If you're working with DNA, uh, you get this a lot. You, you get an artifact, which means somebody somewhere put some DNA in there as we were handling this other DNA. And it messed it up. You're dealing with brain chemistry, we get the same thing. Whatever it is, you hit something like this, you don't say, oh, that we got to throw out all our research. Instead, you say, no, we have a huge body of research. Let's find the backstory of how this went wrong. What was going on that caused this? And there was something going on in Corinth and in Ephesus that Paul had to address. We're going to talk about what that was. But in the meantime, if we allow these two passages to shut down the stream, that's what I mean by helicoptering in and grabbing a, a verse. We have to allow the whole stream to flow. But I'm going to be honest with you. Before I'm willing to let the whole stream wash these two rocks away, I want to know why they're there. So we're going to talk about that. We need to see the context. We need to see the backstory. We need to remember that while the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. And the people there were in a situation. And we have to know that situation. And that's what we're going to do. From now on, rather for now, you need merely to know this. When God walked among us, he called us free. And when the apostles quoted him and spoke of him, they said we were free. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and then verses 4 through 6. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. You who have been trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only, listen to this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Read that with me. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Brother Albert, would you come give us a blessing?